Can't compete with that. God. He's got the hometown advantage. Well, hold on, hold on a second. I'm going to introduce him. You can clap him in a second. So, Scott Ludlam, he's a writer, an activist, and former Green Senator. He served in Parliament from 2008 to 2017 as a co-deputy leader of his party from 2015 to 2017. In an earlier incarnation, he was a filmmaker, an artist, and a graphic artist, but he became interested in environmental matters in the late 80s, leading to his involvement with the Australian Greens, both in communications and as a candidate. Indeed, he stood for the Greens twice before being elected to the Senate, representing Western Australia. He has been part of many political campaigns, including opposition to uranium mining, both at Jabaluka and in Western Australia, against nuclear weapons, foreign military bases, and support for Aboriginal land rights, support for the National Rental Affordability Scheme for Fair Trade and Equitable Globalisation, amongst many other causes. He is also one of the few people in Australia, nay, even the world, whose hair has been given its own name by Whoa. First Dog on the Moon. We're really going <laughs> the long-form <laughs> intro, aren't we? <laughs> Welcome to Mulaney, Gary. Um, according, according to First Dog on the Moon, Gary is personally responsible for many of the Greens' policies. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Scott. You're not I'm sorry. You're not the least bit sorry. <laughs> Currently though, currently, though, he works as a freelance researcher and, in his own words, troublemaker, while writing very occasional pieces for Mianjin, The Monthly, Junkie, and The Guardian. He's here tonight to talk about his uh, book, Full Circle, The Search for What Comes Next, which came out in April last year, but which is still wonderfully, furiously relevant. A treatise on ecology, technology, and politics. Please welcome Scott to Mulaney. Now, Scott, one of the many things that struck me about this book was its lack of focus on you. Uh, you know, it's a book about ideas, not personality, and, and I do want to honour that, but uh, I just want to flag for the moment, for the sake of the audience, that maybe towards the end of the evening we might just sort of bring it back around to you a little bit. But if you want. let's go with ideas to start with. Perhaps we can begin with what's perhaps the central contention of the book that for reasons you teased all throughout the text, we, we, the world, the Western world, or particularly maybe Australia, we're locked into this awful self-destructive coin doubling system. Could you please explain what you mean by that and why 3% annual growth is such a problem? I'll do my best. Thank you so much for joining us. We tried to do this in August and it couldn't happen, so I'm really glad that it did. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. Um, well, because 3% annually compounding growth sounds as dull as hell, like, who cares? I don't care about that phrase. So I was looking for a metaphor that would make sense and make it visual, because I think visually, and came across this very old story about... Um, I guess this comes very early in the book, so it's okay to speak of it without, you know, spoilers, no spoilers, but... Um, the inventor of the original game of chess, who this mathematician who takes this chess game to the queen, and she's delighted with this invention and asks the mathematician what, how he would like to be paid, and he says, I'd like to be paid in gold. Put one coin on the first square of the chessboard, two on the second square, then four, then eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. Just keep doubling up until every square on the chessboard has got coins on it. <clears throat> so just a simple doubling sequence. And they total it up, and the, I work this out because I'm a nerd, the stack of coins on the 64th square would reach about a quarter of the way to Alpha Centauri. Like, it's a number so big, you, I don't even know how to pronounce it. But as a metaphor for what happens if you're locked into a doubling sequence, that a, the, the system, whatever it is, is doubling within a finite period of time, is that it'll just blow a hole in the roof. You let it run long enough. And that's our economic system. That's where we live. That's why we're in such trouble. But if I just said 3% annually compounding growth, you'd be looking for the door. So, But 3% but annual growth is, is like it doubles every 25 years, is that, it? That's right. About once a generation, our economy is twice as heavy on the planet, churning through twice as much material, oil, coal, gold, uranium. And some of these doubling sequences have begun to crash and buckle. You'll notice this really smooth exponential curve that then starts to 
hiccup and zigzag and not look all that well, and that's where we live. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, it, it wouldn't matter if it was just money, if we were just talking numbers, but the numbers, the money is actually kind of tied to physical, finite things, as you say, like, yeah. like, like um, coal. Or well, and a lot of economists would probably really disagree with that, and I don't know if there's any in the room. Like, if you ask well, that 3% annually compounding growth, which is considered healthy economic growth, not too hot, not too slow, 3% is about right, um, if you, if you put that side by side with the fact that our material consumption since the Industrial Revolution, our, we can come back to the definition of who we mean by we, um, is also been tracking roughly 3% annually compounding growth. And it's really difficult to establish if that's correlation or causation or coincidence. And I don't think there's a settled answer to that. But isn't it interesting? this mathematical thing spinning off towards Alpha Centauri happens to be dragging the rest of the physical economy with it, and it's dragging us into a mass extinction. Yeah, that's, kind of, that's a big deal. And, and you know, a lot of it's, it's considered a little bit heretical to bring the conversation back to our foundations of this economic system rather than talking about, well, let's just put some solar panels up or let's um, eat less meat or let's do, a, you know, let's do some stuff. Like, if you bring it right back to the fact that our economy is in this doubling sequence, there's not going to be another doubling, right? This is the last one, we're in the middle of it, it can't keep going like that. Then you're challenging some quite um, deep-seated assumptions and also some extremely powerful political and economic interests. Mm. I mean, one of the things that you do in the book, the book's, the, the book's kind of um, made up of I, th I think five separate threads. Yes, so, and it's much more fun than we're making it sound. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, it, we, there's jokes in it. It, it is a lot more fun. It, it's, uh, I mean, I was really keen to have Scott come to Mulaney because I thought this was one of the most important books I read in the last 12 months because it's, it's witty, it's clever, it's light, but it's also um, the five different strands are kind of broken into short chapters which are woven in amongst each other. And, I mean, I don't know how you labelled those strands when you were putting them together, but it, it was quite interesting because one of them, that, well, two, the two that interest me in this question that I'm asking you here, there's, there's one which where you go back to the very beginnings of life. We're talking, uh, 30, what, four billion years ago or whatever it is. We go back to that stage, and so these little chapters are bringing us forward. Um, and then the other one is where you'd start with your own suburban childhood home huh. on a suburban block. Uh, uh, do, do, do you want to talk about that? It's always interesting which of the strands people will pull forward and be interested in. Um, so that's, that's a really kind intro. Well, um, it's structured like that partly because I'd never written a book before. I don't know how to write books, but I had a little bit of practice writing essays. So I knew how to put together eight or a hundred or a thousand words into a little coherent piece, but I had no idea how to write a book. So I just started producing those in a, in a kind of quite random or stochastic sense without really knowing where anything fitted or where it was going to appear in the book. But I did have this idea of, of these five strands. Principally, it's about, I wanted to answer this for myself and hoped that others would find it interesting. How do social movements sometimes succeed and fail against these really powerful political incumbents or economic incumbents, how do sometimes like scrappy random insurgencies of ordinary folk without training, without backup, without a lot of resources, how come they sometimes win? How come they sometimes create revolutions and, and topple powerful structures? Um, the rest of the book is built about that question. How do social movements sometimes work? How do we sometimes really kill it? Um, in the context of climate change, in the context of where this coin doubling cascade is taking us, and the rest of the book kind of folds around that. And I realised you can't tell a climate change story honestly without visiting geology, without visiting this vast scope of the place we live. How old she is, how old that story is. It's a geological story. I think if you approach questions of climate without just sitting with the immensity of that for a bit, then your, your story's going to be a bit superficial. Mm. How, how did I do? 
No, you did that. You, well, you, you, you talked about the geology one, but I'd, I'd like you to come back to the, to the suburban block as well, because you, there's this lovely um, image that you create where, you, where we look at the house and we look at it sitting in a block of, of, of whatever it is, yeah. a hec 10 hectares or whatever it is. I can't remember what it's the one, number. One hectare. One, he one hectare. Yeah. Just one hectare, 32 houses, okay? The 32 right? people. So one, one okay. hectare... You like, tell the story, OK? I'll, I'll do my best. You've, you've read this thing more recently than me, so you pick me up when I get bits wrong. Um, so, so roughly statistically averages, OK? And, and don't, don't call me out on this, but outer metropolitan Brisbane or Perth or Los Angeles or wherever, so mostly detached houses, very, very low population densities. In one hectare, so a square 100 metres on a side, you have about 13 dwellings and your resident population is going to be about 32 people. That's from the ABS four or five years ago. Um, and I wanted to know how much water do these folks consume? And I'm not taking a shot at anybody because this is I'm describing the place I grew up. That's, I'm the outer suburban kind of person. How much water? How much fuel? How many chickens? Um, how much? stuff, you know, how much trash, how much carbon, and what if you could see a year's worth of it and you just pushed it all out into the middle of the street and piled up a year's worth of that material flow. So the coins in the chess game, like what if we could actually see the oil and the water and the fish and the whatnot. Um, so I actually designed the visual before I wrote it up. I used to do this as, um, as slideshows because I'm such a cheerful guy. Um, so yeah, that essay is a written description of a visual image of let's see all the shit that we churn through in a year, not because we're bad people, but this is the structure we've inherited, and then try and imagine those stacks being twice as high in a generation's time, and and see how we feel about that. It's a lot of stuff. And and to to concur with your thing that you, 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 it's not doom and gloom. You actually there's a there's a great joy also in peeling back how all that stuff got there. It's not. I'm glad you think so too. It's not. It, 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 you make the walls transparent and the ground transparent, and we suddenly see that there is the extraordinary network of pipes uh, right. taking things in and taking things out, and electricity, and all the, all the, 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 the wonders of our modern age that we take for granted. We do. And so there's a game that's being played there. By that time, by that, by the time you get that far through the book. You've also been dodging in and out of this geological story of how living creatures are put together through um, this extraordinary trial and error process of evolution. And it occurred to me a while ago, and this is more metaphor than anything of kind of scientific reality, but if you imagine if you could strip away the walls and the roof and the slab that the house is built on and then strip the earth away as well, so you're in this transparent house, all you can see now is the infrastructure and this kind of remarkable interwoven lacework of systems that are leading back to power stations and server farms and water bores and stuff that spans the whole planet. The game that's being played by this time in the book is that actually living systems, cellular structures, are built in much the same way. They're stacked, they're packed in nice and close together, everything's being fed water, the waste is being removed, it's got power, it's got everything that it needs to live. And I just found it a little bit bonkers to think that cities, you know, urban planners use this phrase, urban metabolism, to describe that throughput of material and energy and water and all the stuff that's coming in, how it's being processed and used in our cities, and then how it's being disposed of. And metabolism's just lifted unapologetically from biology. And they don't mean it as metaphor, they mean it as the metabolism of this urban structure. So a lot of the book is playing with really pushing that concept. Because living systems are always more than metabolism. Always. So what about our cities? But now we're off the deep end. And now there probably are some spoilers, so we shouldn't give too much away. No, I don't think there's any spoilers, because the book is so rich. You can, you can talk about anything. It ends it. cheerfully. It ends well. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not quite so sure about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we, we, can, we can go into some of the darker stuff here because sure, uh, we, 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 we very quickly come into this kind of metabolism of our society, or these systems of our society. We very quickly come into what you call the, the investment theory of party competition. Oh, that's a, an absolute laugh riot, that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a real crowd pleaser. Should we do that quickly? I think, well, I, I think we certainly need to think. I mean, look, we, we're, what, eight weeks out from an election? 
in, right. in this country. And I think that you quote various studies that have been done as to how much a vote costs in... Yeah, and I won't be able to remember it, so don't call me on it. But So the investment theory of party competition is this thing I came across some amazing researchers in the United States where they've been keeping quite good financial records of how much money each of their two major parties, their system's a lot simpler than ours, spends in House of Representatives elections going all the way back to 1980. So you've got um, however many House seats there are in the US House of Representatives, lots more than we've got here, every two years, all the way back to 1980. How much did each party, Republican and Democrat, spend in that race, going all the way back then? And then they've gone and compared that with how much of the vote they got. And wouldn't you believe it, it's a straight line correlation. Whoever spends the most money wins. If you don't find that terrifying, if you know in advance how much each of the major parties have spent in the US, you don't need people to vote. <laughs> that's, not, that's not necessarily how democracy is intended to work. And we don't have data as good in Australia. Oh, and there are, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it's one-to-one. -one. There are outliers, there are some really interesting cases that bucked the trend, but it's, it's, the correlation is more or less a straight line. In Australia, we don't have figures as good, but Grattan Institute did a study after the 2019 federal election and established that in the last five federal elections, the party that spent the most money won the most seats, in five out of five. So, um, so what, what so are we going to do about that? Well, so what, That's a I big mean, deal. Before we get there, just a minute, where does the money come from? Anybody want to guess? Uh, it comes from emergent oligarchies. It comes from the most powerful economic sectors who are buying candidates and making, not in the sense of, I'm going to give you money and then I'm going to get my way. It's more that they thin the field and they tilt the electoral table. So you can still get a Bernie. You, you can still get these outliers who are raising five bucks at a time or ten bucks at a time or, you know, like independents and Greens are doing in this country right at this moment. But most of the money is coming from the 1% of the 1%, and it's coming from these huge pools of dark money. Actually, a lot of it, we don't know where it comes from. Um, but it's this enmeshment of economic and political interests. If you've got money, you can buy political systems whole, and that leads us to this concept of state capture. Um, so I've ceased talking, speaking of that as corruption, because corruption is much less interesting and less dangerous than what we, what we have at the moment. So. Just for a moment, let's just define. Corruption is where um, I go to my local government and I say, look, I really want to do a development on the eastern side of Mulaney. Um, yes. What, 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 if I, what if I was to put this brown paper bag on your, um, on your passenger seat at 2 o'clock in the morning? Interesting. There, you know? yep. and, and suddenly I find that my development goes ahead. Right. That's corruption, yeah? Yes. State capture is something slightly more sophisticated. Uh, I think it is. It's a lot more systematic, is what it is. And rather than um, the paper bag on the on the seat, it's kind of it's a lot of it happens actually in broad daylight. And, and I'm sorry, just I just to interrupt just for a moment is that what I was interested to notice was recently, kind of in the Ipswich blow up of the council, there was that people still are putting money oh, yeah. in brown paper bags. I, yeah. I kind of thought that went out okay. with Joe, Joker Peterson. I, no. I'm very naive somehow or other. I, I, didn't, I no. didn't think it went on anymore, but it, it still does. It's yeah. not that it doesn't happen, and it's why, you know, you see what happens, see what the ICAC is doing in New South Wales, and I don't know exactly how that kind of stuff is hosed up here, but there is still corruption and it's entrenched. State capture is a term the World Bank came up with. Uh, they were watching emerging oligarchies forming after the breakup of the Soviet Union in these post-Soviet republics where they were holding elections. Media was suddenly free to publish. You had civil society organisations springing up. And that you're noticing that these oligarchies are starting to capture um, enough of a fraction of the political infrastructure to get their way uh, in ways that you wouldn't really call corruption. It's just a ton. There's no money in the paper bags, or if that's happening, it's peripheral and it matters less. If you can buy a political system whole and set the incentive structures up and kind of cull anybody who's against your will and just chuck them to the margins through like media pressure or deciding who gets pre-selected or who doesn't or whatever, then um, you get to decide what is illicit or corrupt. You get to decide that we have no national ICAC. And you get to gradually tilt the table in the direction of oligarchy. State capture is not a static process. It's really dynamic. 
Um, and it, it, it pushes itself, it's self-reinforcing in the direction of oligarchy. Uh, that's where that I also believe that's where we live right now. It's, not, it's much more systematic than corruption, but it's not fully locked down oligarchy. We're having this conversation in safety, right? We can still do this. You still post the podcast, I can still write books, I get to choose who I go out and vote for, and I'm going to be voting for people who aren't part of the capture structure. So it doesn't say that we're trapped and buggered, or that we're risking our lives like people in Moscow or St. Petersburg at the moment, but we've got to be aware of where that slide is taking us. You don't arrest the slide and pull it back in the other direction, it's going to get harder and harder. There's still jokes in the book, I promise. But <laughs> he keeps asking hard questions. Ask yeah, no, no, but, but, but this, is, this is what's, this is what is is really interesting, and what we need to. Uh, I mean, I think I'm going to go back to you just for a second, okay? Because because he uh, Scott, as I said, didn't he, he refuses to talk about himself in the book anywhere, really? Like he just there's, there's just. Nothing about him itself, ex but then there's, there are a few little. There's bits. one line, right? There's one line. I'm going to get it. You know, <laughs> it's not that just bad. one line. Paragraph two, section two of the book. He says, "I got a job, lost it in the most careless, careless way imaginable. Brooded and moped around for months. Then came an offer too good to refuse. Travelled to Lebanon to meet with emerging Green Party activists. And what he does in the book is he goes off and travels around the world." visiting people in Mongolia and Lebanon and um, Sweden and uh, God knows where else you are going to, but all these different places. And trying to find ways to avoid that slope into state capture? Yeah, or visit places where it's in full effect. You know, visit places where it happened, places like Mongolia or Lebanon. In Lebanon, I don't think they call it state capture. Um, they call it a systemically corrupt oligarchy because they passed through the state capture phase and they, they weren't able to stop it. Thank you. And so, um, and yet there are still people doing work. The thing with state capture, again, or even oligarchies, that there's still, you can still report on this stuff in the media and there's still the Greens, um, Lebanon, these incredibly feisty and courageous people. There's still people working. So my intention with the travel parts of the book, of which there ended up being quite a bit, is to try and get a read on folk who are doing similar kind of work than, than I've been doing here in, in vastly diverse and different contexts, as far from home as I could get. Yeah. Yeah. And, and finding ways to undermine the process that's going... That's yeah, going. finding stuff that was really familiar. And, and finding courage, like everywhere you go, there are people having meetings like this, sometimes they're public, sometimes they're not, uh, people trying to figure out what to do, people making common cause, and people pushing back everywhere, everywhere. And do you have any kind of suggestions on that? I mean, I noticed that... you just have to I, read the I, books, I, 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 I noticed that, uh, that, you know, on the last line of, of page 299, I'm giving, a, <laughs> I'm giving a spoiler here, okay? For as long as our states remain captive to the investors, none of us are any under any obligation to obey their laws. Oh, okay, that's provocative, isn't up, it? Which is, you know, a little bit of a call to action that you're getting there, and it brought me to kind of think of the work of Andreas Malm, who's saying, you know, why are there not more eco-terrorists out here? Why are, why are we not taking more action against the destruction of the planet that we're yeah. seeing around us? Well, I've, I'm interested to test the premise, and if we can do Q&A afterwards, or if you want to come have a chat, tell me if you think this conception is flawed, but the state derives its legitimacy this is an old thought that I is certainly not original to me. States derive the legitimacy from, you know, from us being able to take part in exercising our franchise and choosing who the state is run by. Like, if we're delegating these responsibilities to representatives, then it needs to be a fair fight. And this, this conversation's been going for hundreds of years. If our laws aren't being made by representatives in a free and fair and open and transparent way, responsive to the electorate, responsive to us, if they are in fact being written by investors, and it doesn't matter how hard you try, the coal and the oil and gas industries are still running the show, then I don't consider that a legitimate form of lawmaking. And that has energised um, civil disobedience actions that I've taken in the past. Why should we obey laws that Santos wrote? You know, really, why? Uh, when, when the Queensland Resources Council a couple of years ago now, 
was, was really pissed off at what Extinction Rebellion were doing in central Brisbane. And they were provocative, and they are, they are actions that inconvenience people, um, in the same sense that a, a smoke alarm is also noisy and inconvenient if your house is on fire. Um, the Queensland Resources Council pulls a press conference and says, right now we need to ban these lock-on devices. Um, these are acts of terrorism and people are being annoyed and so on. And within a couple of weeks, the Premier did exactly that. Queensland Resources Council puts out its press release, giving the Premier a pat on the head. And that's state capture. That's an industry sector demanding that the courts interpret these laws, which we wrote, in a certain way to shut people the hell up. And that's the smoke alarm being deactivated while the house is on fire. It's, so state capture is dangerous. It means you can task policing agencies. Another example, which I didn't go to in the book, but it's one I think about a lot, is sending national security agencies who are meant to be keeping us safe from violent extremists and tasking them to spy on the East Timorese cabinet and then passing that sensitive information to Woodside. So, yeah, go on. And people are paying a heavy price for that. The people who did the work and the people who blew the whistle and their legal representatives are still tied up in courts and still can't tell us what's going on because they don't know what evidence is being led against them. That's state capture. When you capture a legislature, you get to start manipulating all of these agencies operating in the public trust. That's extremely dangerous. Yeah. It's mostly not what the book is about, but it is an idea that I feel like we should talk about more. We don't have to talk, call it corruption. We also don't have to go outside and say, oh, democracy's dead, we're buggered. We are so far from buggered. But we've just got to be aware of what's being done. Okay. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Um, I, I mean, well, I, I don't mean to put it all on your shoulders, because, 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 because I, I, I think there's, there is a real desire amongst the progressive people in this country to have somebody stand up and say, we need to do this. Yeah. And, I, Great. I, I, I'm not asking you to, to, to be that person or to say that, but I would, some ideas would be really useful. Yeah, okay, so my suggestion is stop waiting for that person to show up. He's not coming. He's not coming. We all have to be that person. Like, we all have to be that person, for real. Like, leadership is distributed in this age. If you look at the people who are standing up, claiming leadership, mostly they're a horror show paid for by the gas industry. So that person isn't coming. Um, in, in the book, a fair bit, I've, and maybe this is stuff that, that lost people, I don't know, but I'm interested in the feedback, studied systems theory and applied that to social movements. Like, how do social movements work? And this idea of leadership, where's that come from? And um, it's a rather beautiful piece of network theory that looked at different, differently configured networks, like really hierarchical ones, where there is that guy who's standing up saying, I know what's what, follow me, and we're going to go and do this, are, are, are trivially easy to disrupt. The networks that are actually the most robust against the repression that is already here and the repression that's coming are networks kind of built on family and friendship foundations, and they're called small world networks, where we've got our little home cluster of a few dozen people that we love and trust and know well, but also we've got quite diverse social networks that stretch quite far, so when we get attacked, we can call in support from quite diverse parts of our social network. And there's like just really clever work that I'm not doing justice to here, which if you kind of fast forward all of the references and citations says, don't trust a strongly hierarchical social movement because it's just really easy to decapitate it. Leadership has to be distributed, and generally they're networks of love and trust. They're, they're not, it's not a paid thing. It's not about paying your membership and hoping that somebody will take care of this stuff. Everybody, in, what, in whatever capacity we're in, whether we're inside the machine and we work for these companies or not, that makes us especially interesting. Or if we're, if we're in a more adversarial position outside, like we've all got something that we've got to bring. We're all necessary. And you give a, speaking of the kind of coin doubling machine, there is also this as a, a whole chapter on the kind of statistical thing that if you get seven people, in the scout hall on a Tuesday night, yes. and then each one of those people goes out. I love that shit. I love it. Well, it's the, so here's this thing. How long have we got? Because I could seriously just go on. We've, still, we, we've got plenty of time at the moment. Okay, good. Okay. I've missed these conversations because the pandemic just has wiped out so much. But um, the mathematics of these runaway social movement cascades, like a Greta Thunberg sitting on the steps of parliament, there's one of her, 
And then two and a half years later, there's seven million kids. Like, how do you get from one to seven million? Well, it's the same maths as the coin doubling game. You know, like you double, you double, you double. And yes, there's, there's zigzags and it goes up and down and people try to stop it and they get more creative and they do this and it's this real push and pull. But you, these cascades are operating along similar lines. And there's all these studies in sociology and systems theory of the mathematics of bushfires, um, avalanches, pandemics, like anything that's kind of got this runaway, and then what is it that's going to stop the runaway and bring it back down to Earth? And it turns out that um, we're probably all sick of hearing about the R number. Like if the virus or if the person in the social movement can recruit just, what, just slightly more than one other person, it'll go off then you've got a doubling cascade. And if the state or the opposition or the gas industry or the whoever can make sure that whoever's out there ringing the alarm bell and trying to build support recruits slightly less than one extra person, then it'll fizzle. It'll fizzle out. So if everybody in this room were to find a little bit more than one other person to bring to the action planning meeting where we take our democracy back, you've got this cascade that just goes up until it's on its way to Alpha Centauri. And I just find it fascinating that the maths are so similar of, if you graph, this would do better with the picture on the wall, but the frequency and the intensity. So how often does a big thing happen compared to how often a little things happen? And you graph it, it's this smooth line, like an earthquake or a forest fire or an avalanche. The big ones are out there, the revolutions are out there, but they're built out of individual actions of people sitting on the steps, signing a petition, talking to their neighbour, holding a placard, or blocking a road. I mean, during that little, very moving thing you just said there, you, you kind of skipped across that thing, though, that, that the seven people. I, I really loved, I really loved the image that if, you know, seven of you are meeting yeah. in the scout hall, and then next next month, on the second Tuesday of the month, you actually get 15 people. Sure, you do maths. It, 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 the maths is just extraordinary because within, it's like within six months or something, you've got 900,000 people. But yeah. if you only get 13 the next month, within three months, the movement's dead. And I think that I can probably speak for every single person in this hall that we have all met in scout halls on the second Tuesday of a month and watched our numbers <laughs> dwindle. Right. Um, I may not I'm be not, able I'm to... not getting every... Maybe, maybe they haven't, but certainly you haven't... If those who haven't, haven't dealt with the Sunshine Coast Council. That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Um, I'm probably not going to find it, and it wouldn't be all that interesting if I did, but you get the picture, right? These things, they can run away like avalanches, um, but they're not made of rocks. They're made of relationships and courage, mostly. They're, and again, there's some really interesting work in there that I've cited. None of these thoughts are remotely original about what happens, like this repression paradox. Like if you take a social movement that's really banging along and you attack it, um, how come sometimes that is terrifying and everybody goes home and it fizzes and sometimes that brings out ten times as many people and they're angry. So the repression paradox can cut either way. The um, Russian authorities are playing the repression paradox at the moment. They are jailing thousands of people like us at the moment hoping that it provokes fear because if it provokes anger, they're gone. They're gone. It'll be like the explosion or the avalanche. Um, so we need to think about that a little bit, about how we protect each other um, at the point where the repression paradox is played on us. Now, that's gone into a bit of a dark place, hasn't it? But It has, but it's, 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 an, important, it's an important place. The, um, it's important. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I've got a, a list of some words and, and phrases here that I, that, I, um, that, that I just picked out of... You know, uh, I, I did this when I was advertising the event here. I said, you know, want to know what the Overton window is? And, and I, I, I thought yeah, you okay. might just tell us what the Overton window is. Uh, quick show of hands. Who has a reasonable idea already? Okay, not so many. Um, well, I hadn't heard of it either until I started down this track. But the Overton window is this uh, idea that came out of some US academic a couple of years ago that describes the boundaries of debate, like the acceptable boundaries of what we can talk about before people will be like, oh, no, nah, 
that's a bit too much. Um, and I'd be really interesting if you folk think I've already trespassed outside that window, but it's like, what are the things that central, sensible centrists are happy to talk about? It's not too offensive, it's not going to ruffle too many feathers. That's inside the Overton window. And then the ideas kind of radiating away on either side, left or right, if you want to be simplistic about it, will take you to more or less greater degrees of extreme. And gradually what happens over time is that social movements shift the Overton window. 20 years ago, the concept of um, same-sex marriage was marginal, radical, un in some quarters unthinkable, maybe a bit offensive. And people, campaigners, organisers, and people kind of right in the middle of it, shifted the Overton window really cleverly. It took decades, and the work, that work is obviously still not done, until it was a thing that, it, that prime ministers are like, well, yes, of course, moving the Overton window. Now, how are we going with the Overton window on climate change, do, you, do we think? Right, so if, and I know this is not a, this is not a, like a randomly sampled poll if you're coming to an event like this, but is, Maybe like even a quick show of hands, if that's all right. Who thinks that the concept of absolutely no new fossil infrastructure of any kind needs to ever be built again? We need to start rapidly phasing out the stuff that we have in a way that doesn't strand workforces, but that it has to start closing tomorrow. Is that inside the Overton window or outside of it? Inside. inside. You think it's inside? No, no, sorry. Oh, sorry. No. I totally buggered that up, didn't I? No, sorry. <laughs> Who thinks that idea is outside the Overton window at present? Who thinks it's presently inside or maybe approaching inside or a, safe, a safer bet? Some. Okay. Who is going to commit every waking moment with rest and sleep and nice things still permitted in getting that idea the hell into the Overton window as fast as we can? As fast as we can. How come some of you don't have your hands on? <laughs> um, I feel like that's the most important work that we can do on this planet at this time. But uh, keen to see if folk think that that's a terrible idea. Who thinks that's a terrible idea and that we shouldn't do that? that that's also a fair proposition. It's not in the Overton window and nor should it be. That's also legitimate. Nobody, okay. Well, it's, it's not a random sample. They've, they, they've, they've come out to hear you speak. Let's no? go talk to some random people and just make that sample bigger and move the window. No, but, the... I mean, they did do a, uh, the Guardian mm. Essential Poll this week. It's had 57% yeah. had, had of the population of Australia wanting that to become Lovely. the focus. You know? so, so maybe let's bring back this back around to where we started. If you've got a situation where most people think that should be in the window and yet the window stubbornly refuses to move, you may be suffering the symptoms of state capture. It may be somebody keeping the window stuck. Okay, great. Yes, possibly the Morrison government. Yeah, but also uh, definitely the Morrison government in a, like a really brazen mask-off kind of crazy way. But if there is a change of government and we get a Labor government with whatever size crossbench, is that window going to move? No. That's state capture. Okay, we're getting uh, somewhere. I, I, well, I see, I, sure? would dis I would disagree with that because I think that we actually got a carbon trading scheme the last time the Labour Party was in, but with in, con in consonance with the Greens, yes. we got a carbon trading scheme. So if, if, uh, the, Labor, if the Labour Party had mm. managed to be able to talk to, the, talk to each other, they would have stayed in government, and 10 years later, we would be a long way down we the would. carbon neutral track in this country. It, well, it was working at the time, um, and it's uh, a period of time that I'm extremely proud of, and a period of time that I think in that particular domain, in that policy space, we weren't suffering state capture, because the majority of parliament was having a proper go at turning the ship, at shifting things. But look at what's happened since then. Um, it wasn't just that Labor couldn't stand each other, like I actually give them a little bit more credit than some others. By that time, there were tens of millions of dollars being spent by the investors to blow them up, either like pouring all kinds of acid into their fault lines and into their relationships, their factional relationships and whatnot, but also front page after front page after front page. The telly's at it again today. Albo, you're not allowed to be woke, like what, what, but they're still doing it. So you had this huge investment in blowing that experiment up and that policy up, and they succeeded. And now, and I'm not here to campaign for Labor, obviously, um, 
they've decided, and maybe this is tactically clever, to not announce anything that will offend any interest group of any kind at all. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Like, honestly, so you're quite right. Um, if we get a change of government and a big, angry, feisty crossbench that wants the same things that everybody in this room wants, then yes, we can make, we can make some progress. Or I guess my, my point is the work won't be done if that happens. We're still going to need to build a social movement and actually make sure that this pressure is sustained yeah. from outside parliament. Yeah. yeah. So look, we, I'm just looking at the clock here. I want to take us over to questions from the audience. But Lovely. Just, just before we do, I, I would like to bring it back to you a little bit. Where, where, where are you up to now in your life after, after having been a senator and done all this traveling and met all these people? Where, where do you go now? What do you do? Well, it's going to sound a bit weird, but a lot of it is in there. And partly the purpose of writing it was to make a publisher pay for my midlife crisis, really, and um, get a sense of what to do next, like what kind of priorities have come out of that. So there's some ideas that pop out of there that I'm pursuing. The state capture work is one of them. There's some other stuff in there that are like now on my desk, but what am I doing? I'm turning that into an audiobook, so release it an essay at a time and post that, so you'll be able to listen to that before too long if reading a big chunky thing is not so much your thing. Um, getting that state capture concept out and working with friends and allies, campaigning to get friends and dear people elected into federal parliament, and um, living a somewhat quieter rural existence on the south coast with a kelpie and a, a decent potato crop. Why are you laughing at that? They're great. Like, they're really good. Okay. So, look, I, I, um, I'm, I'm going to throw you over to, um, to, to the audience then for questions. Tuni has a roving mic, and we'll just get you as we go. Okay, we've got two to start with, and then we'll see where we go from there. Thanks, Scott, for all that you do for us. I really appreciate you. all your humanity and activism for such a long time. I'm wondering if you can encapsulate for us. I've been concerned. I'm a member of the Green Party for a long, long time, by the way. I've actually run for the Greens in 1995. I was concerned that people don't understand the preferential voting system mm. and how that works. And yeah. I asked the Electoral Commission in 1995 and they said, oh, 80% of people don't know. 15% do and can explain it, and 5% I can't explain it, 15% and 5% do and can explain it. So. Okay, so we're about to find out which of those fractions I'm in, which is terrifying. Um, <laughs> the, the trick for, for our movement, but I suspect for political parties more broadly, is if you've only got a brief amount of time with an audience, do you want to talk about the electoral system or do you want to talk about the kind of stuff that we're talking about now? We've got this kind of wonderful thing that um, our friends in the US or the UK don't have, where you just put a candidate's name on the thing and there's no preferences. If your candidate doesn't get up, that's it, your vote is burned. We have a system whereby you really can put who you prefer at the top of your ballot paper. If that person gets elected, that's that's great. Um, if they don't, your vote goes through at full value to whoever you put number two. So I am not going to sit up here and tell you who to vote for. I respect your intelligence more than that. But just be aware that, uh, maybe I'll tell you what I'm going to be doing, is putting the candidates, so I'm going to look at my ballot paper and know a little bit about who these folk are. I'll be putting the people who are not in the state capture ecosystem and aren't taking cash from these industries at the top and then the slightly nicer ones who are in the capture ecosystem in the middle, and then the race haters and fascists at the bottom. That's what I'll be doing. And if we were, if, if lots of us were to do that, then um, there would be real change at the ballot box. We would still need powerful social movements. But at least the people in government wouldn't be attacking us for the kind of work that we're trying to do. Yeah. Thank you. Um, oh, I got through that diplomatically, didn't I? Scott, oh, can, can you comment on Simon Holmes' court and the money that he's putting into those this batch of independents that are coming up? I can't see where the question's coming from. Oh, hey. Yeah. Um, I think overall it's a really positive trend. I, I'm not following the money trail as closely as some people, and I'm a bit worried by some of the commentary, even, even 
recently about like they'll take donations from whoever. Like that actually really bugs me, but I don't want to misquote that. But um, I think overall the the um, the phenomenon is a really healthy one, particularly in liberal seats where you've got these folk who are pretending to be on our side on climate change and believe the same things that we do, while voting 100% with the gas industry and the coal industry, they're getting challenged by local candidates with a bit of a track record um, and like real grassroots organising rather than the kind of Clive Palmer type stuff. I can't see that as not being healthy. Um, all I'm hoping that people will recognise is that it feels like a groundswell, but we've kind of seen this before. Um, it's unlikely that dozens of these candidates are going to get up. And so if what we're all doing again is thinking, all of those folk who show up on your ballot paper, put them as close to the top as you can in whatever order you prefer them before you start deciding which of the major parties you want to vote for. Um, then there can be change. And then, you know, these votes will stack up. Some of these people can win. And we saw in 2010, in a hung parliament in the House and in the Senate, that suddenly the major parties are very amenable to negotiation. That's how the Clean Energy Act came about. That's your, that's your case study from before. It's worth it. It's not the whole game, but it's worth it. So I wish these people luck, um, and hopefully enough of them get through, like collectively, across bench. But I'm, I've stopped thinking about it as a duopoly or as the major parties of, of Labor and LNP. I'm starting to think of it in terms of the, the captured parties and the people who aren't, people who are doing it for other reasons, better reasons. And um, that's how we have to start thinking the numbers. And so, look, I'm, I'm supposed to be taking questions from the audience, but I, I can't resist your thoughts on Clive Palmer. Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm t because, because he, is somebody, really? he is somebody who is investing 100, maybe even more than that, million dollars into time. the electoral system in the same way that he did three years ago. Yeah. I, I didn't mean your opinion of him personally. I meant of yeah. his influence on the political system. I, I think it's a... Um, it's an unusually blunt and arrogant example of how badly things can go wrong. He used to get what he wanted by funding the Nationals, and then he got bored of the Nationals, and so now he just buys seats. And um, so we've been talking about that example of the Clean Energy Act, Julie Gillard, Greg Combey, Bob Brown, Adam Bank, Christine Milne, and a room full of like really smart policy people, Ross Garneau and so on, designed the Clean Energy Act, looking at the numbers in Parliament. Let's design a package that will A, work, and B, we have the numbers to pass. And that's what happened. Then I sat there, um, I forget the number, there's a number in there somewhere, number of days, it wasn't a number of years, later, when Clive Palmer's senators that he'd paid for to get in there were the swing votes to abolish about 80% those laws. He bought himself a seat up here, he bought three senators and they were the swing votes. That's how come there's no carbon price at the moment. Um, so that's what I think of Clive Palmer. That has to stop. You could legislate that kind of action out of existence just with funding caps on elections. You could make that unlawful. The next parliament should do that. Questions please. Hey, Scott. Um, if, a nice segue, actually, from Clive Palmer, um, the notion of populism, uh, I guess. And uh, I guess populism isn't just people like Clive Palmer. It is actually also people like Bernie Sanders and, and probably yourself, actually, when you were having a, a couple of good runs in the Senate. And uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, I actually also come from a design background, and so I'm aware of the, the, the use of personality um, trying to create personality and branding, and when you've got uh, when you've got candidates or parties or movements that don't have a, a strong personality, um, they often get sort of lost. I guess they're part of that uh, five percent who can explain uh, preferential voting. Um, you know, and most people are going for for people. I, I don't simpler things that they can yeah. understand and they can they can uh, get a feeling from. So I'm just wondering if you have any f uh, feelings around the role of populism and, you know, it seems to be quite in vogue at the moment. Um, but we have had populism in the form of, say, Bob Hawke um, in the past. Do you see there being any role of that or is it, um, is it just a slippery slope to, you know, a, a, a not very good place? 
No, I, I don't think it's... I think if it's a slippery slope, then we're already at the bottom of it, right? I think um, <laughs> that, that has been as old... It's probably as old as politics. Nobody wants to vote for a technocrat. You want to vote for a human being, for a warm-blooded human being. The problem is... Um, and so then certain people will, will excel in that milieu, and then certain people will suck at it, like our present Prime Minister, so it all has to be manufactured. They have to just invent it. And I feel like he's managed to sustain it for a certain while. I'm loving watching it disintegrate. <laughs> and so there's, um, I don't disagree with anything that you said there. The thing with Bob Hawke, I guess, is that he wasn't really faking it. You just, that was kind of who he was. And under that guise of being a regular bloke, I can remember as a kid finding quite appealing, doing some pretty awful stuff, actually. <laughs> you can get away with that. But I, you know, that, at least he was a genuine human being. <clears throat> Same with Paul Keating. I feel like there's limits to, when, to the fabrication of it or to the manufacturing of it. Trump hit that wall, Boris was about to hit that wall, and then there was a war. And I think Morrison, I mean, maybe they'll be able to pull something out of at the bag, right? But I feel like it's an interesting case study, and I don't know if anybody's read that recent Sean Kelly book on him, of you can only take the manufacturing of a personality so far. Um, before reality bumps into it, um, either in the form of a massive flood or a pandemic or a war or a fire or take your pick, and then suddenly people can see there's nothing there and it's not very appealing. Thank you. So, oh. G'day, Scott. I particularly liked your... What is it? Somebody got a quote, you? Yeah. particularly like your connectedness diagram exploitation, conservation, forward to release, forward to reorganisation. Oh, bless you. Yeah. I particularly like that because I've theorised for ages about where are we heading. It all started with the, um, the Industrial Revolution and then the graphs took off, took off to go vertical. All the graphs took off to go vertical. You mentioned a couple before, growth mm. and blah, 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 blah. But what nobody seems to talk about much, you find reference to it somewhere, is the... Um, I'll read my notes. I'll read my notes so as I question word for word so I don't mess it. Um, does your book theorise on a solution to human overpopulation, which is the cause of all these problems that you go through in your book? Um, and the, you talk about the graphs going up vertical through the roof. Yeah. The human population of the world graph is going up through the roof. Surely that could be seen as the cause. I'd love to hear your view on that or read a book on it written by you <laughs> so I could pass these things down to my descendants to give them some hope for the future. Amazing. Thank you for how carefully you've thought that through. That's awesome. There's quite a bit, maybe a surprising amount of some thinking in there about population, because I think a lot of people are coming from that, like with the line going vertical and so on. The key thing that I reckon is interesting and really important is that human population is no longer on a doubling path. Human population isn't playing the coin doubling game, and it hasn't been since the late 1960s. So when you started getting uh, education for women and girls and women's reproductive health in particular, in, in you know, like much in a much more distributed way throughout the parts of the world where population had been growing really fast, um, that, that doubling, which had been prevailing since really since the 18th century, um, started, to, started to cap off. So there's no scenario that I'm aware of that suggests human population is going to double again. It's meant to top out somewhere between 10 or 12 billion dollars, a billion people, got money on the brain, later this century. but those consumption curves are still rocketing up on the coin doubling game. And so for me, that divergence is really important. It says it's population's not the driver, something else is happening there. Population will drive consumption for a while, obviously, like everybody's got to eat and the graph of all the stuff out in the street is going to be like that, but population's not doubling anymore. That feels like something, like in places like Japan, it's actually falling. Like in really advanced industrial economies, population starts to fall. So I think for our own minds, sometimes, and I'm not suggesting that this is what you were doing, because I know you'd, you'd thought that through really carefully, population or overpopulation questions can be quite a lazy 
mis misunderstanding, I guess, of the root of the problem because Im Im immediately what you're meant to think of is Bangladesh or Sub-Saharan Africa or India uh, where people have an absolute fraction, a tiny fraction of the material um, resource consumption that somebody like me has or that probably many of us in this room have. And if it always felt a bit strange, but I didn't, I didn't figure out why until a long way into the, into the researching of the book. Why it would be like somebody like me who, who was on an aircraft this morning would be pointing at some girl in Bangladesh and saying, your existence is the problem. It ain't true. It's about the stuff. It's about how much of the stuff we're churning and burning through. It's not about the kid in Bangladesh. Scott, when Dr. Carl came and uh, addressed us in your chair, he described what the Murdoch press did to him when he tried to stand and how they just white-handed him completely. Yeah. And that is still a very major problem, surely. Yeah, it is. I thought for a while that newspapers were going to die and that then it wouldn't matter so much, that there we have such concentration of, of ownership. The problem being, that, A, they haven't died. I mean, they're basically just Harvey Norman catalogues now. Um, <laughs> with some kind of low-key character assassination thrown in. But they still drive talkback radio, and they still drive what you're going to see on the evening news, and they still drive what's often getting shared out online. So it is... I think it's one of the reasons that things are taking so long to work through in Australia and in other parts of the world where that press, that form of press predominates, because it's not performing that role of being a watchdog on power, it's the mouthpiece of power. It's then they use it as a political weapon to bowl people over. And it's not lefties like me or women or people of colour who cop it way worse. They, they, they tore Malcolm Turnbull to bits for doing stuff that was utterly feeble and mediocre, but it still stepped out of line. They blew up a National Party leader, Brendan Grills, in Western Australia because he proposed taxing the gas industry. I don't care what political party you're from. They'll, they'll blow your career to bits if they can. And we have to stick up to them. Um, we, we have to stop buying their stuff. Uh, we have to call out advertisers who are actually more important to their revenues than sale of the newspapers. And we have to support alternative media platforms when they're set up. And that's everything from a local community newspaper to independent outlets like Crikey or um, Michael West Media or kind of at the other end of the scale when somebody tries something genu genuinely new and dangerous like WikiLeaks and you see the hammer come down on them, we have to protect them too and, and kind of create a new media e ecosystem from the ground up to replace this rotten thing that's still doing what it's been doing. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've probably got time for one more question. Do I have a que one more question in the audience? Yes, there's a gentleman there at the back. Last question for you, Scott. Hi, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, I, I study history. Um, my feeling is technology has a massive impact on world history. Yeah. Um, and humans have been in a scenario before of staring the end in the face. I, I, I remember one in Queen Elizabeth the first time they thought they'd run out of sea coal in 30 years, and yes. that's the end of that. They discovered the Harbour Bosch process transforming our reliance on um, uh, fertilizers, which allowed for this massive population graph. So I've not read your book, but I'm looking forward to doing that. It's like what do you think technology is the solution? Some people don't think that. Some people don't like this idea that we should rely on technology. But for me, that seems to be the solution. I would propose like a minor amendment. And I would say it's a solution. Um, I'm, I'm that's one of the reasons that the... Not that we've talked about it much, so that's a ripper of a question to go out on. One of the reasons the book ends on a really optimistic note, and I feel like I got more fired up and optimistic the further through it I got, is that... This transition is happening incredibly quickly because technology is again leading. Like sometimes technology leads politics, sometimes it's the other way around. But I reckon maybe more often than we realise, technology is leading politics. So this incredible 
uh, drop in the cost of solar photovoltaics, wind in particular, and now batteries are on that cost reduction curve as well, means that the clean energy solutions that we need to step, not our whole economy, but we can step our energy sector, the sector that drives the rest of it, we can get it off the coin doubling game because these things don't consume fuel. They consume no fuel once they're built. Fuel is free, a gift of the planet. And that stuff is now cheaper than the coal and the oil and gas or delivering hypothetical fusion energy or like whatever people think might occur. The clean stuff that we need to get out of the coin doubling game in the energy sector at least is cheaper than the expensive stuff. So right, and that is sending these huge shockwaves through our energy sector. So I don't know if that was kind of the example you had in mind, but that is my, one of my favorite ones. And the politicians are 10 years behind, still saying, oh, what happens when the sun doesn't shine? It's like, guys, that's long, well, and truly been sorted. Like, that's not a, an argument that you should be able to run with a straight face anymore. We've, that's sorted. Um, so yes, technology is a solution, but it's not the solution in the sense that if that was all we did, the oceans are still gonna fill up with plastic. What's gonna happen to all these PV cells when, you know, after 30 years, all these batteries, that we're meant to start churning through? Where's all that lithium going to come from? On whose traditional land are these enormous solar farms going to be built? And what happens if the TOs say, no, we don't want that there, that can't go there? It's, it's always going to be about people, I think. It's always, there's always going to be political questions about allocation of resources, who, who gets to live next to the waste dump of decaying solar PV panels. That's not a technology question now, that's a human being question. So even though I feel like it gives us the wind at our, at, at our backs, we should talk about that more. I'm halfway through reading The Big Switch at the moment. And that's a book about that technology wind at our backs that engineers and architects and planners and scientists have given us that. It's taken 30 or 40 years, but we have it now. But it's, this is never, ever just going to be a question of technology, I don't think. It's always going to be about our relationships with each other, and particularly people who've been shut out of debates like this for, uh, in this colony for 23 and a half decades. Fantastic. Thank you. That's a wonderful, wonderful note to end on.